0: Well, church family, we have had an opportunity to worship the Lord through song and through the giving of our gifts and uh, around the communion table together. Let's enjoy and worship the Lord through the study of his word. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it together. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to join me in the New Testament book of Romans today, Romans chapter 8. If you need a Bible, you got out of the house without yours this morning. We keep some in the back. We'd love to just... Put a copy of God's Word in your hand if you need that. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. Grab that if you wouldn't mind. Uh, that will, I think, be of some help along the way. And my guess is it's 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 very unlikely that you thought this morning we would be singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. Right? Of all the songs you might have thought we would be singing, that probably wouldn't have been one. But I, I love that Brandon would take a, that song out of its normal context uh, and maybe at a certain time of the year and just bring its lyrics to mind. Because those lyrics declare that our God is marching on toward triumph and victory. Through time and into eternity. And he's doing that with a glorious hallelujah. Amen. And we got to sing about that. The absolutely sure and certain fact is that God always wins. Right? Right? He always triumphs. That's the truth today, church family, that we want to zero in on. He is the ultimate undisputed victor in this war that has raged between himself and Satan since the beginning of the human story. God wins, and because God wins, we win if we are in Jesus by faith. Yeah? That is the truth. And you believe that? Yeah, you do. If you are visiting us perhaps maybe for the first time this morning or first time in a while, uh, you're joining us as we are spending time together uh, focusing on just some of the 3,500 plus promises of God that are found on the pages of Scripture. So we've got this series called Standing on the Promises of God, promises that were made by God to us and today, we're going to be sharing together the promise of victory, as you see it there on your note page. His promise that because He wins, we win. And the verses that kind of capture that for us out of Romans 8, verse 31 and 37, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? And in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's the promise of victory. And so we invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. Show us the riches of your word. And we say amen to that. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Several years ago, for several years, I was on our mountain rescue, our local mountain rescue team. Uh, It's been a while, but I have some great memories from that season in my life. However, one memory that I can't seem to shake it's not a great memory, but I want to share it with you. It was during that time that I was on the rescue team that there was a climbing accident that occurred in up in British Columbia. And the details of that accident I have never forgotten. To this day, it still gives me a shiver when I think about this particular accident. Two climbers had completed their chosen rock climbing route. They had topped out. And all that was left now was for them to rappel back down the cliff face that they had just climbed up. And so they chose as their rappel anchor for the the rope that they would rappel down on, they chose a tree that was at the top of the cliff that was about a foot and a half in diameter. So, you know, pretty good sized tree that they were going to anchor onto. Confident that it would hold, they tied their rope into this tree and they began to rappel down in classic fashion without warning. The tree, roots and all, just broke off and went tumbling over the edge of the cliff. And tragically, the two climbers were killed. Later investigation revealed that there had just been too thin a layer of soil atop of the rock that this tree was growing in. And that soil had been saturated by recent rains. And so the investigators were really amazed that this tree had grown to such a size, given the meager amount of topsoil uh, and the conditions that it was growing in, they would have expected it to come down much sooner. So it looked like something that it really was not. I remember our rescue team's reaction when we learned about this accident. We talked about it as a team. Note to team, note to self. Absolutely everything depends on the integrity and the reliability of the anchor. That was the takeaway truth. You can have cutting edge gear. You can have bomb proof ropes. You can have members with decades of rescue and climbing experience. But man, if that anchor is not secure, if it's not reliable, if it's not safe every single time, none of the rest of that stuff is going to matter. The anchors, the tie-in points are super important and they make all the difference between a, a successful outcome or a tragedy. But you know what, church family, that is a truth that doesn't just apply to the context of climbing. It is also super important in the context of doing life as a Christian. The anchor points. Ours is an uncertain, sinful, dangerous, unpredictable, fallen world. And nobody needs to tell you that because you already know that it's true. You and I have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. In fact, we don't even know what the rest of this day is going to look like, do we? It is very, very uncertain. And brothers and sisters, this is where the promises of God come in to our lives and are so important. They become, in effect... The anchor points for our faith to tie into as our lives, to use the climbing analogy, rappel off into tomorrow's uncertainties. What are we tied into? What is our faith tied into? And are those anchor points going to hold? That's what this is all about, thinking about the promises of God. There are are two verses that have become more or less the bookends for this particular series. The first one we found uh, on our very first day, it uh, comes out of the Old Testament. It's Numbers twenty-three nineteen. It reads, God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? What's the answer to that? No, of course not. If he makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And then from the New Testament, kind of the counterpart to that Old Testament truth For all the promises of God find their yes where? In the person of Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God's promises are the anchors, the the anchor points that our, our faith ties into, and they will hold every time for all of time. How good is that? So we're hanging out with these promises. Today, it is God's promise of victory that he gives to you and me, his victory and ours. Because God wins, we win because we are in Jesus through faith. Let's see if we can get our our heads and our hearts around this promise a little bit, a promise that will carry us through many a perilous journey and climb and, and get us through safely. God always wins. Do you say amen with me? Amen. Amen. Now, if you are a lover of Jesus and you're a lover of God's word and you've been a Christian for even a short period of time, this idea that God always wins is not a new truth. It's It's not a new insight. In fact, the very term God with a capital G demands that it be true that God always wins. God would not, and he could not be your God today if he could ever lose, right? If he could ever lose, he would not be your God. Because that would mean that something or someone bested him, and that would instantly render him not God. So you're not a God you would want to follow, but his attributes of omniscience knowing all things at all times, his attribute of omnipresence being everywhere at every moment, and his attribute of omnipotence being all powerful over everything in the visible and invisible realms, automatically all of those attributes make the promise of victory for him and for us absolutely certain. God always wins. He cannot lose. And if we are in Jesus, we win too. Yeah. On your note page, I've assembled just the smallest collection of verses out of hundreds that we could look at that just declare this truth about our always winning, never losing God. And I thought they would just be an encouragement, just the sheer weight of them pushing us forward this morning. So let's just take a look at them very quickly, and then you can maybe come back in your quiet time this week and camp out on some of these, maybe a little bit more if you'd like. From Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 27, God says, "Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me?" What's the answer, church? No! It's another way for God to say I always win, right? If nothing's too hard for me, then I always win. And I really like this next verse, Genesis 3:15 in in the in a seminary classroom, this verse would be known as the proto evangelum. Now that's Latin, and we don't talk like that, but here's what this means genesis three fifteen proto means first evangelum means good news, so this is the very first instance in the bible genesis three fifteen the very first instance where we learn about the gospel, the promise of God sending Jesus. To deal with sin in our lives. Adam and Eve had just rebelled against God earlier in this chapter 3. Sin has come into the world by Satan's temptation and man's will. But before the chapter is even over, God announces his victory. How does he do that? Well, he speaks to Satan and he says this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, who is the he? That's Jesus. Jesus. He, Jesus, will crush your head. What does that mean? That means, de- that means he, he, he's defeated, right? He is done. And you will strike Jesus' heel. Now, Satan will strike Jesus' heel at the cross, right? He will do that at the cross, but by his resurrection, Jesus delivers the death blow to Satan and seals his fate. I love that. God says, I'm going to win. I will win. Genesis 3.15. John 16.33, Jesus says to his followers only hours before he makes his trek up to uh, a little hill outside of Jerusalem called Calvary. The cross is on his back. But just before that, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have what? I have overcome the world. What is that? That's a declaration of victory, isn't it? That's a declaration. Another way for Jesus to say, I win. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54 to 57, the Apostle Paul is writing to these believers in Corinth about their future and about life and death. And here's what, he's, here's what the Holy Spirit tells us. Verse 54. Death is swallowed up in Victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the Holy Spirit declares this about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Does that make you the winner? It does, doesn't it? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is that? That's victory. That is victory. Jesus wins. And we've read the end of the book, haven't we? We've got the book of Revelation, and you've read that. And and in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, we read these words. And the devil who had deceived them, that would be Satan, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, tormented day and night forever and ever. Does that sound like somebody just lost and somebody won? Yeah, we're told here that. That Satan loses, the enemy of our souls loses, and oh, what an anguish it must be for him to know that this is the end of the story. He keeps fighting, but this is the end. And just a few verses later, last chapter of the last book, Revelation 21, 5 and 6, here's what Jesus says. He who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. It is done, exclamation point. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I'm the last man standing. Yeah, I win. And fellow Christian, because we are in Jesus, by faith in his cross and his resurrection, we win too. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? That is great to know. That is just great to know. It's great to know that we are on the winning side. Because God the Father is victorious and the Lord Jesus Christ is overcome. Together they can promise you and me that we win. We'll be victorious. Romans chapter 8. That's where your Bible is open now. The 8th chapter of Romans was in a very real sense written, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to Christians to tell them that the anchor that they have tied their life into, by faith, their anchor, Jesus, is secure. He is safe. He is going to hold. The anchor is Jesus, and it is only Jesus ever, right? There's no other anchor. Chapter 8 opens with this declaration. No condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 1. That word condemnation, it means sentence of punishment. There is now no sentence of punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. No divine sentence hanging over the head of anyone who has trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. He's paid our sin debt For us himself. That's verses 1 through 4. Then in verses 5 through 11, now that we're alive through faith in Jesus, God himself comes to live inside of us by the person of his spirit so that we have the power to live for God in the way that he wants us to be able to do that. We couldn't do it before, but now we can. And then in verses 12 to 17, we're told that though we were once spiritual orphans, through our faith in the Lord Jesus, we've been adopted into God's family. We are God's sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus of all that heaven holds. It's a great truth. And then in verses 18 to 25, God says, I'm going to restore all that sin and Satan has laid waste. And then the ultimate purpose of all this, where is all of this going? Well, in 26 to 30, God says, I plan to conform your character into the person of Jesus' character. You're not going to all become little Jesuses, but you're going to reflect his character. I'm going to redeem you and transform your character into the character of my son. Now, we might feel that based on who we are right now, that will never happen. But brothers and sisters, it's going to happen because God's going to make that happen. It's incredible truth. One laid on top of the other, on top of the other, running up to this section, verses 31 to 39, that Brandon read for us a moment ago. All of these truths piled on top of each other prompt Paul to ask a rhetorical question in verse 31. What then shall we say to all of these truths, to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... Amen and amen. You can almost hear Paul saying, Hey, Christian, anchor your soul in this. In all things, you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. And his love for you and your love for him. God says, I win. And because I win, I promise that you win How cool is that? You can almost hear it. The chapter ends, interestingly enough, with the words, there is now no separation. There is no separation. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how does the chapter begin? It begins in verse 1 with no condemnation. And because there's no condemnation, there is therefore going to be no separation. In verse 39, do you see that? What great news that is. And woven in and out and through this entire section, quiet, immovable, unshakable, is this promise of victory. Now, to convey this, Paul is going to employ a, a question and answer kind of strategy in verses 31 to 39. And maybe you already noticed this. But in rapid fire fashion, he asks a series of questions and then he inserts a God promise in between each of these questions like water cascading over over a waterfall. These questions and their answers are going to serve to celebrate our security in Jesus that our anchor really will hold. But it's also to celebrate our victory in Jesus as well, no matter what happens around us, no matter what happens to us. We are more than conquerors. So, on the flip side of your note page, I went ahead and I summarized the questions. We'll just call them the FAQs, the the frequently asked questions in this passage, and then you can see as well a, a corresponding FSP, a faithfully supplied promise. Now, I, I I I came up with that FSP part. All right, okay, yeah. Faithfully supplied promise from God to each of these questions that Paul puts forth. And so these promises, they're going to be like the anchor points for our soul. Verse 31, first promise, first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? The frequently asked question number one, who opposes us? Who opposes us? The faithfully supplied promise God is for us. This is a declaration of unfiltered confidence on on Paul's part. I know without a shadow of a doubt that God is for me, he says. I know that. Those are the words of a man who is really comfortable and confident in this relationship with Jesus. Jesus, he's tied into Jesus. He's anchored into Jesus. And there are no doubts about it, man. Man. Jesus is for me. God is for me. And so a question that might be prompted by this thought is, can you say the same thing? Can you say the same thing this morning? Do you have that same confidence that your God is for you? Do you? Yeah? Yeah, I I hope that you do. Because you certainly can and should have that hope and that confidence. And by the way, Paul's not using the word if Here in verse 31, in its conditional sense, uh, if this and this and this happens, then we might be able to expect this from God. It's not a conditional if. This is if used in in English. It would be in its declarative form, which means we could just as easily translate this as the word since. Since God is for us, who can be against us? That's as if Paul is saying, since God is for me, what difference does it make who's against me? It makes no difference, right? It wouldn't matter who's against me if God is for me. They can't win. Paul's not suggesting that we don't have opponents, that we don't have opposition, that we don't have adversaries in our life. I mean, our most most ruthless adversary is Satan, and we can't see him, but he is out against us all the time. The point Paul is making is that every opponent, no matter who it is, is puny compared to our God. Here's what Psalm 118.6 says. The Lord is on my side. The Lord is for me, he says. I will not fear what can man do to me. You ever read that verse? Yeah, you might have memorized that. That's really the Old Testament version, if you stop and think about it. It's really the Old Testament version of of Romans 8.31. Now, in order to make this promise really personal, I wonder if I could be so bold as to ask you to insert your name in verse 31 right after the words, for God is for, and then you insert your name. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'll 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 say the first three words and then you shout. Don't mumble. Don't whisper. You shout your name. Are you game? All right. Let's give it a try. God is for Tim. That was awesome. That was so good. We want to do that again. God is for. Does that feel good? That should feel good. Because it's true, it's true. When you feel like someone or something is against you, remember God is for you, and you can come to Romans eight thirty one and insert your name. And it's true. As we're doing life, and you feel like it's pushing back, claim this first FSP, this first faithfully supplied promise from God. The second FAQ is framed in verse thirty two. Who withholds from us? Who, who keeps from us? And the faithfully supplied promise, God provides everything that we need. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Church family, the gift of Jesus is both the proof and the pledge that God will be will be sure that you and I have what we need to do this thing called the Christian life. Notice the phrase his own. He who did not spare his own son. The Holy Spirit's drawing our attention to the father's possession of Jesus. His son whom he freely gave to die on a cross for you and me. He gave him for us all which means that Jesus died instead of you and I having to die. His death was our eternal benefit. So the argument is really from the greater to the lesser if you if you observe this. Since God did not hesitate to give his greatest possession, who is Jesus, his own son, if he didn't hesitate to give us his greatest possession, how will he not give us all of the other possessions that we need which are going to be less than Jesus? Do you follow the argument? Yeah, as kind of an absurd example, if a mom and dad had the money and the resources and decided to build a 7,600-yard professional-level golf course just for their kids, okay? So they built this incredible golf course. Do you think that they're not going to supply them with what they need to play the game? The far lesser things of clubs and shoes and golf balls, right? Right? It wouldn't make any sense to give them the best and not give them everything else that they would need. And that's the argument. Check out Second Peter One three. We, we bumped up against this verse a few weeks ago when we first started our series together. His divine power has given us what? Everything we need. For life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. If God has given us his best, will he not give us everything else that we need? That's his promise. I'm going to do it. God is for us and he provides. Well, that leads to the third and the fourth FAQ and FSPs there because they are closely linked together. Who accuses us since God has already acquitted us? And who condemns us? since Jesus is constantly praying for us. Check out verse 33 and 34 one more time. Who will bring a charge, any charge, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who is, who is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, brothers and sisters, Many more of us than we might imagine, though we are in Jesus by faith, continue to hear the accusing anthem of guilt and shame playing in the background of our minds and our lives. Maybe it plays in your life right now. This this song of guilt and shame because of perhaps because of some some recent incident of disobedience or, or selfish pride, or maybe because of some past sin that you have come to believe is so grievous and so heinous that God really couldn't forgive it completely. And so you live with this, this kind of accusing voice always in the background, playing a song that you, you, you're guilty. You're guilty. And if you're not playing that song, I would just have you know that there is one who is playing it for you. Yeah. Did you know that every moment of your Christian life there is an accuser who is filing charges against you in the court of heaven, every day, all the time, hoping to see you condemned by God? Did you know that? If, if you if you doubt that, it's declared in Revelation chapter twelve, verse ten. This accuser takes note of every one of your sins, every mistake, every rebellious act. And, and he doesn't want you to forget about your past. And so he's going to help you remember it if he can. Because he has no higher goal than to to take you to the court of heaven and press charges. And this, this accuser's name is Satan. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect is the question It is God who justifies. Do you know what the word justify means in the New Testament? It means not guilty. It is God who declares you what? Not guilty. Satan rails before the bench of heaven concerning you. Brings these charges against you. Says he's not worthy. She's not worthy. They're guilty of more sins than they can count. And Satan knows this, and so he brings these charges, and he accuses us before the bench. God's holy bench. And, and it's all true. And, and what, is the, what is the penalty for all of that sin? It's death. It's separation from God. And it's at that precise moment that Jesus steps up to the bench and he says, Father, in this case, it is true. Death is the sentence, but the death has already occurred. I died this sinner's death. The sentence has been been already carried out by you and by me. I died this sinner's death. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, Is interceding for us. And so Satan becomes suddenly silent. And we're stunned. And humbled. We stand before the judge of heaven. But the intercessor steps in. And says. It's been paid for. And God says. You're right. They are not guilty. Justified. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to do what? To make intercession for us, to be our, our advocate, our defender. The accuser's been found in contempt. He's banished from the courtroom, and you and I are declared not guilty. It's the promise of victory justified, not condemned. God is for us. He's providing. He's acquitting. He's interceding. And then comes that fifth and final FAQ. As Paul reflects on this, the accuser, the one who condemns in verse 34, and as he thinks about what Jesus has done and is doing for us, he then says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That word separate here. It it, it comes from a Greek word that means to drive a wedge into something to split it apart. It was also a word sometimes translated as amputate. Is there anything, Christian, listen to me, is there anything that can drive a wedge between you and the love that Jesus has for you today? Is there anything? Is there anything that can amputate or cut you off from the love of Jesus in your life? Who or what can tear us from the loving embrace of Jesus? The answer? Nothing. Verse 35. Shall tribulation? No. Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. The sword? No. All seven of these things that Paul mentions here. They hide within the folds of an unknown future in your life. These may be yours. They might be mine very soon. Seven years after after Paul writes these words, many of the Roman Christians who heard these words would see them come true in their own lives as the Emperor, Emperor Nero will arrest them for being Christians and he'll throw them into prison and he will send them to the lions and he will burn them at the stake. This isn't a game. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet death does not separate us from the love of Jesus. If anything, it takes us deeper into him, right? The faithfully supplied promise to the question, who can separate me from Jesus, is nothing. Nothing. Jesus' love. Holds me to him. In fact, Jesus will say on the night before he goes to the cross in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, what? So I have loved you. What is Jesus saying? He is saying nothing less than that the same love that God loves him with, an eternal, infinite love, the very same love that God loves Jesus with, Jesus loves you and me with. Now, marinate on that. Oh, man. Jesus, can anything take me from you or you from me? Is there anything that could defeat us or beat us or triumph over us? Verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is a declaration of victory. Now, I understand that one of the more trendy, cool words today is the word Uber. You familiar with this word, Uber? You hear this word from time to time? You, you know, the, the, today there are Uber drinks. There are Uber energy bars. There are Uber health foods, Uber vitamins. There are Uber fitness competitions, I mean, you just hear this word coming up, and I didn't know what this word meant for a really long time. I finally decided, I'm going to Google that word. And so I Googled it, and you know what? It's a German word, and it means far above or or high over or extremely excelling. So it's the word used to communicate when something is intensely super. That's the idea. In verse 37, Paul uses... The first century, first century equivalent Greek word for Uber. And if he were writing verse 37 today, he might simply say, no, in all these things, we are Uber conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I'm not sure that's going to catch on with the translators. I don't think it's going to show up in the next version of of the New Testament. But you get the idea, right? We are super excelling conquerors because we are in a love relationship with God through faith in Jesus. We are uber conquerors. Can you get, can you get your heart around that thought? The thought is really in verse 37. It's, it's actually verse 31. Very similar. What can possibly stand against God? If he is for us, who can be against us? What can successfully come against him? Nothing. If we are in him, we, what, can, what can come against us and, and win? Nothing. We are uber conquerors. You want to say that just, just to kind of let it, let your tongue feel it? Can you say, I am an uber conqueror? Oh, that just sounded weird. That's all. (laughs) And it maybe felt weird. I am an uber-conqueror. But you are. You are. Verses 38 and 39. Are you an uber-conqueror even in the face of death? Yes, even in the face of death, it can't win. Are you an uber-conqueror in the face of supernatural enemies, Satan and his forces, the angels and the demons? Are you? Yes, you are. What about in the face of uncertain future? Are you an uber conqueror? Yeah. What about in the face of political turmoil? Paul's term, any powers there in verse 38. It's a reference to governmental powers. Uh, It was something that Paul faced constantly in his ministry. Uh, He suffered for his faith at the hands of the government all the time. But if you're an uber conqueror, can the government take you out? Nope. Nope. Neither height nor depth, meaning the things beyond our ability to understand. You're an uber-conqueror. Can that stuff take you out? No, it can't. And just in case you might have left something out, Paul adds, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from Christ's love. Who gets included in that last phrase? Nothing else in all creation. Who's in there? You are. I am. We are in there. Some of us may wonder if perhaps we could do something so grievous, so reprehensible, so terrible that God washes his hands of us. He unclips the rope from the anchor point and he says, I'm done. And this verse says, no, that can never happen. Not even you can separate you from the love of Jesus. (laughs) And maybe that's exactly what you needed to hear today. Maybe that's all you'll take away from today, but that'll be enough. Romans eight thirty one 31 and 39 are some of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture. They tell us exactly where we stand with God if we're in Jesus by faith, if we've asked him into our life by faith, and we've, we've stopped relying on our own goodness or our own efforts to somehow impress him, and we're, we're just totally trusting in him who died for us and paid our sin debt for us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because our God always wins, we cannot be defeated. We cannot be defeated. Do you believe it, brother, sister? It's the promise of victory. It's the promise of victory. Let's pray together. How we thank you. How we thank you, Heavenly Father, for this promise. Oh, it is so good to know the end of the story, which is really the beginning of our story. Because our story never ends. But what a glorious, great truth that we are uber conquerors today. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. And all to be loved by him. The way that you love him. We are loved by him in that way. What a glorious truth that is for us today. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what today holds. But we know that you hold us. Thank you. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.